Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So we continue our sermon series based on Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, and it's the Divided Church of Christ is the name of the sermon series, Paul's writing letter, this letter to a church that's struggling with its own identity, is what, what does it mean to be a church following in the footsteps of Christ? Last week, Pastor Tony uh, preached uh, foolish preaching by Pastor Tony Kako. This morning, I have no impressive wisdom here from 1 Corinthians. So some of you are like, well, that's a no-brainer. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through the reading. It's basically the second chapter of Corinthians, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to pick one of you to explain what this means to me, okay? You ready, Tim? First five sentences I get, first five verses. The rest of it, I think you'll agree. You scratch your head a little bit. So Paul writes, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words of wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. So those are the first five verses. Now, the rest of this, Tim is going to translate for us. Yet among the mature, we do not speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for they, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also, no one comprehends what is truly God's except the spirit of God. Now we have re received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by the human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. <laughs> Ask my mom and dad. Okay, yeah. Good luck. <laughs> so obviously a lot of words there, a lot of dealing with the Spirit, but let's Let's go back and focus on the top five verses that Paul says, because I think a lot of what this passage has to say we can deem from these first five verses. Paul's talking about when he first came to Corinth, and he preached to the people of this church of Corinth, telling them about Jesus crucified. And he talks about the fact that he came not as an impressive preacher, 
He came and he kind of stumbled through his words and, and he, 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 he wrestled with how to say it and he, he, didn't, he didn't speak in eloquence and wisdom and, and he really struggled with how to say the right things to these people. And it, it made me think, and if you've ever been a public speaker, you know that sometimes what you try to communicate isn't always what is heard. Sometimes you try to express something, but it comes out differently. So I was thinking back on my many examples of sermons where didn't quite go the way I thought, and there are many from 20-some years of doing this, but one in particular came to mind, and some of you have been here long enough that you might remember this one. Last service, there was one head in the congregation going, oh yeah, even before I said it, he knew what I was talking about. It was my sermon of feathers. So I was preaching on gossip and the dangers of gossip, and instead of using the simple analogy of a tube of toothpaste where toothpaste comes out of the tube and you can't put it back in, great image. No, I decided to take it one step further, and I decided I was going to use a down pillow. So I had a down pillow and a big industrial fan set up behind me. And so I decided I'm going to show, and I only did it in this service because I wasn't brave enough to do it in the sanctuary, but I did it in here, I turned that fan on right at the right time, cut that pillow open, and feathers covered the air in the connection center. And it was, for a while, a pin drop moment as everyone stood there or sat there and just looked at all of the feathers throughout the air here coating this place. It was beautiful, and everyone in here agreed for a while, <laughs> until after, it's the funny thing is I, I still get people to come to me and say, I found a feather in my drawer from your, or whenever they come here and they work on the HVAC system, they go, what's the deal with the feathers? But I thought it was still a great image. I thought it made its point until someone that was sitting right where you're sitting, and I did it like from right about here, came up and he was dressed, he came up to me after the service, dressed in flannel. <laughs> Feathers all the way down. He's happily worshiping at another congregation today. <laughs> Sometimes the image you think you're communicating gets taken different way. There are many times I've preached a sermon here and someone comes up and says, wow, thank you for that. That story that you told has convinced me that I need to go and forgive my, my friend who I haven't forgiven. And I think to myself, I never once in that sermon talked about forgiveness. <laughs> but sometimes it's the spirit that takes it different way. I can't tell you all of the Christmas Eves when, when I didn't give the sermon and somebody came up to me and said, hey, that was a really great sermon. <laughs> yeah, you had a good nap, in other words, is what you're saying. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so there you go. So, all right. Oh, at Kosai, yeah. I really like it. You get double communion today. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me go on here. And so, uh, so yeah, you, you, if you've ever done public speaking, you know what that's like. You, uh, 
you try to convey something and sometimes it doesn't come across as what you're trying to convey. Paul, here in this letter to the church of Corinth, says, I purposely fumbled through it. I purposely didn't use words of wisdom. I didn't try to look impressive or to wow you with my words. And then he goes on to say this, for I decided to know nothing among you. This is the most important verse, I think, of what we just read. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, this is, this is it. I decided to know nothing among you. I didn't want to look impressive. I didn't want to, you to stand up because keep in mind this is a world where you, you loved the great Greek orators or the Roman speakers that did it by confidence and impressive lofty words. And Paul's like, I purposely didn't want to do that because I wanted you to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now the word crucified comes from this Greek word Starro, starro, I should say, starro. And it literally means to stake down, as brutal as that is, to stake down. So the word is intended to kind of mean an end, right? I staked you down, it's done. But the way Paul uses it, and we don't, we don't really have something that translates like this into English. In Greek, they have this tense called the perfect tense. Perfect tense. And what it means is something has happened, but it continues to happen. So it, it is a part of past, but it has ongoing significance. It goes, it, it continues to happen. And that's the, that's the tense that Paul uses with crucified. So Jesus was crucified, but is still, it's still happening. It's still occurring. It's still taking place. It's Jesus basically uh, we, we can't all of a sudden look at a risen Christ and take away the crucified Christ because it's in the crucified Christ that we see a God who says, I am unconditionally with you. I unequivocally show my solidarity with all of you and all of humankind. I go through your pain. I know what it's like to suffer I want you to continue to see that. Even through the resurrected Christ, we still have the crucified Christ that goes on and has ongoing significance. Different gospel writers try to communicate this in different ways around the time of the resurrection. So Mark says it like this. The angel says to those who showed up at the tomb, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. In other words, don't spend your time looking in the empty tomb. Go figure out where he is at work in the world. It's an ongoing significance. Gospel writer John tells us the story of Thomas. Thomas, who doubted, who, who wanted to see the, the wounds in Jesus' hand and wasn't going to believe until he saw it. And John says this. Jesus then shows up and says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Do you know who that is? Who is it that is not seen but has come to believe? You. John's writing to you, to all of us who have, are not like the disciples. We haven't witnessed it firsthand, but we know it has ongoing significance. 
and it continues to make a difference in the world, and we believe in that. Romans, another letter of Paul, Paul writes this, and I have to say that my study Bible, as I was preparing for today, in 1 Corinthians, pointed to this passage as one to look up, because it According to the study Bible, it has something, it, it kind of corresponds with what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians. And so I went to look at it, and honestly, I debated whether to show you this verse, because I kept thinking, what does this have to do with what Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians? He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. So I was thinking, what? How does that verse, why is that, that verse not hitting me very, very much as I read this? And then it occurred to me. Do you know why? Because I'm not really suffering right now. I mean, I had hernia surgery a week and a half ago, and that was inconvenient, but I'm, I don't think that qualifies as suffering. Suffering, like, re, my life is pretty good right now. I know there is a day where that may not be the case or grief or pain will come, but right now, I'm not really suffering, and so this verse doesn't really jump out at me. But what does this verse, and a crucified Christ who shows solidarity with us, what does this verse and that crucified Christ say to someone who may be, let's say, on the front lines in Ukraine? The, the sufferings we are going through now, we gotta put our hope and our trust that God's taking it somewhere, that we're going somewhere with this. What does it look like if you're a person of color and you have to worry about every traffic violation that you have? But is there a hope where a day comes where this isn't the case? What if you're my friend Pashtana, who's you'll hear more from in weeks to come, but she's in Afghanistan, she's fled Afghanistan because she was involved in the education of women, frowned on by the Taliban now. She fled for her life, and she now lives in fear of trying to get her family out before they figure out her family's related to her. At age 27, what does it look like, the sufferings of this present time, putting your trust that God's going to lead us to a better day. Some of you know pain and suffering. You've lost a spouse of some years or somebody that was super important to you. And what does it look like to know that somehow God's still leading us to a place of hope and a brighter day? Paul talks a lot in the part that we can't really make a lot of sense of about the mystery of God. This mystery of God that's at work in the world in ways that sometimes we can't understand. And he also talks about the wisdom of God and how different the wisdom of God is from our own wisdom. So let me give you some examples of maybe how this is different, how we experience God's wisdom versus our own. So Q teaches a class at Capitol called uh, Music Theory, right? Music Theory, where you study uh, music, and I'm going to butcher the definition of this, but you, you learn about audiation and different ways that music strikes the ear and chords and, I don't know, some, somewhat accurate. And, and so you learn all about these things. Or, or what if you study 
uh, music and you learn about the cello or the bass guitar or, or the drums and you learn the different rhythms and ways of, of, of doing your music and composition and all of those things. So those are important. That's human wisdom. But then maybe the wisdom of God somehow is found when we listen to Mozart and we can't define it. Why am I crying? Why do I feel joy right now? The same might be said of studying biology and, and what happens during nine months of pregnancy and how the baby forms and is shaped and this happens at this month, this week, and then this, and, and then we, we study all the different things that happen along the way, and then that's important, that's human wisdom, but then the wisdom of God seems to happen when we hold up that child and make eye contact for the first time and say, so it's you. <laughs> oh, that's different than human wisdom, isn't it? One of my favorite authors, and I say lots of favorite authors, I act like I read a lot, but it's like three books a year. Um, <laughs> Marcus Borg talks about churchianity. Churchianity as opposed to Christianity. In churchianity, we want to define things. We want a lot of human wisdom, but sometimes the wisdom of God is so different than human wisdom. And he says this, churchianity is not supposed to survive because churchianity has no hospitality for mystery and uncertainty. And because it is reliant on hubris and has no humility, it can't seem to appreciate any gray area. I love that quote. It's like churchianity, and not that church isn't important, but sometimes we're guilty in the church of just trying to define things. Even Jesus at one point lead, led us down this path. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter got the right answer. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. But one of my other favorite authors, who I actually am reading his book right now, his name is Gregory Boyle, and I highly recommend this book. I've talked about him before. He's an author who is in L.A. He's a Catholic priest. And he runs an industry, he's a very unique priest, in that he runs this industry called Homeboy Industries in L.A. So he works with the, the most violent gang members in the country. And he brings them into this industry, takes them off the streets, and they become employed, and they are part of this organization. And he says uh, in this book that when Jesus asks the question, who do you say I am, he's found a better way to ask that He's confident enough to argue with Jesus. He says, how do you say I am? How do you say I am? In his world, that makes a big difference. Instead of who do you say, how do you say I am? See, Jesus, this mystery of God, this crucified Jesus has always sided, as we know, with the suffering, with the stranger, and with those in need of hope. And so, in his book, I'll close with this story, he tells the story of Miguel. Now, I gotta set the scene first. It's, they have a waiting room at uh, Homeboys Industries, and in the waiting room are usually people that are trying to either enter the program or get some sort of uh, financial support or food or people that just wanna interview Gregory Boyle. 
And so he has an office that's outside of the waiting room, has his door open, the waiting room, there's several people sitting in there, some of their employees are there, former gang members, TV's on with CNN or something like that, just typical waiting room scene. And then off the street comes in this guy who's slurring and definitely aggravated. And he's, Gregory's watching from his office and this guy's really agitated. He's got a can of Pepsi in his hand and as he's talking, the Pepsi's flying all over, hitting desks and chairs and, and he realizes that he's gonna have to come in and intervene in this scene. But before he gets up out of his chair, in walks Miguel. Miguel, who's in charge of security at Homeboy Industries. Miguel, who Gregory defines as the largest person ever to work in our corporation. And he comes in and gently takes the man and says, let's step outside. And they walk outside and they get out to the street corner. The guy's still agitated. And Miguel says to him, let me buy you some tacos. And the man turns to Miguel lifts up his shirt, shows a handgun, and says, how about instead I put a bullet in your blank? Miguel pauses, his heart now has skipped a beat. He's thinking, how do I respond? He takes a deep breath, and he says to him, two or three tacos. Two or three tacos. And they start to make their way toward their favorite taco place. And the guy that, that can only be identified as a mixture of madness and meth is now talking to himself, but he doesn't realize he's actually talking out loud. And he's got two voices that are talking within him. And one out loud, and Miguel overhears this whole thing, is saying, just shoot him. Just shoot him. Just shoot him. And the other voice says, no, he obviously cares. He's trying to buy us tacos. And the whole way these two voices are arguing, they get to the taco place, he gets him three tacos, he takes the first one and just chucks it all over the floor and then devours the other two. And Gregory writes in his book, the dude like so many of us, starving, starving for sustenance, starving for someone to show he cared. That's the crucified Christ that still has ongoing relevance in our world, that still is bringing out hope. It's tried and true. Two tacos or three. How do you say I am? <laughs> Amen.